Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Well, welcome everybody to another uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar. This is sponsored, of course, by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the document-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at Ashland University. Um, as you know, the theme of our webinar series this uh, year, this academic year, is Great American Debates. If you're joining us for the first time, our purpose is to bring together some thoughtful scholars uh, and some uh, and have, have a, hopefully a lively conversation about some important moments in, uh, in U.S. history and political thought. So uh, please feel free to join us in that conversation today by submitting questions in the chat feature. And as always, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. Uh, in the next week, you'll get a link in an email to request a certificate of participation and in that email, you'll also get a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So um, the debate for today is uh, Hamilton versus Jefferson. And we're joined by very two uh, thoughtful, uh, intelligent scholars. Um, happy to introduce Stephen Knott of the U.S. Naval War College and Todd Estes of Oakland University. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. So Hamilton versus Jefferson. So it's implied from the um, uh, from the title of the of the webinar today that there, every, as everybody knows, there's a great political duel, so to speak, that takes place uh, between them. Maybe I shouldn't use the word duel in the context of Hamilton. <laughs> please, <Sorry>. please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my first question for both of you is, who started it? No, I'm just kidding. I apologize. <laughs> but maybe, maybe you'd like to address that later. But um, so we, I'm hoping we can talk about about what the differences are that emerge between them, and why those differences emerge. But I'd, I'd also uh, be really interested in your thoughts at some point today um, about what both of them actually contributed in their own way to uh, American constitutionalism and to American self-government, to American politics. So we know there's a difference, but maybe maybe. We could also talk about perhaps what they had in common. And um, I'm also interested in um, their, their um, backgrounds and, and their own sort of intellectual um, uh, history and, and maybe how that, their educations, their experiences helped to, you know, prepare them for the roles that they would fill, fill especially in Washington's, um, in Washington's cabinet uh, and later, perhaps. Um, but maybe we can, can we start with, uh, uh, I'll start, I'll throw a, a sort of broad general question out and you, of course, are free to answer that or ignore it as you like and talk about whatever is going to be interesting to you. But can we say something about, um, well, we're, we're well aware of the, um, the, the, the relationship between Hamilton and Jefferson, um, that developed in Washington's cabinet. Um, what was their relationship like before um, they were both serving in Washington's cabinet? Did they, were they, I'm sure they were familiar with each other. Um, 
was there correspondence between them? Did they get along? Did they think alike? Were they uh, friends? I'll jump in. I, uh, uh, Todd may correct me on this, but I don't think they had actually even met uh, prior to Jefferson's return uh, from France uh, in the spring of 1790 to take up his cabinet post as Secretary of State. So uh, they really did not know each other. And I'm not aware of any correspondence between the two prior to that time. Again, Todd might, might correct me on this. But, um, Chris, you, you did mention the influence of their backgrounds, and I, I actually think that is uh, critical to sort of explaining the differences that emerged between the two men. Uh, Hamilton's upbringing could not have been more dysfunctional. Um, father ran off when he was 10 or 11 years old. Mother died about a year after the father abandoned the family. Hamilton was passed from one relative to another. Uh, many of those folks also living in what today we would call dysfunctional uh, uh, lifestyles. Um, so Hamilton's view of the world, I think, was a lot more bleak or bleaker. Uh, than, than Jefferson's. And, and I think it, you see this later in their approach to some of the major policy disputes of the early republic. Hamilton, I think, is far more the realist, uh, doesn't share some of the Jeffersonian idealism, which even though I'm a Hamiltonian, I actually admire that streak in Jefferson. Uh, so Hamilton's world, I think, is a darker world, a world of... Uh, uh, where, where stability and order are to be valued and supported, but that stability, that order can can be gone in a flash, whether it's a parent dying or a parent running off on you or simply having to fend for yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Jefferson's upbringing, I think, was much more idyllic. I know that one of Jefferson's first memories was a looking back on his childhood was of being carried on a pillow by a slave. Uh, trust me, there was never an instance in Hamilton's life where anybody was carrying him on a pillow. Uh, Hamilton's life, Hamilton's youth was, as I said, marked by instability, uh, dislocation, and that's going to influence his thinking as an adult. Yeah, I think that's very good. And um, the only thing I would add to that is I, I don't know of any meeting between Jefferson and Hamilton before the cabinet experience like Steve. I'm not aware of that. I think the I think it's important to note that uh, Jefferson's knowledge of Hamilton was really secondhand until that cabinet meeting. And it was really through Madison, because Madison's the one who communicated to Jefferson about what the Philadelphia Convention had done about the shape of the Constitution, about the progress of the ratification debate. And in the course of that, he talked about Hamilton and talked about the convention and various things that were being done. So I, I think in many ways, um, Jefferson's knowledge of, of, uh, of, of Hamilton really does come through Madison, who's kind of the third, uh, the, the silent member, I guess, of this uh, uh, duo we're, we're talking about this morning. Madison obviously had independent relationships with both Jefferson and Hamilton. And I think um, Madison is in many ways the kind of conduit to, uh, to bring them together in some ways and to provide some background. Uh, but that said, as, as Steve notes, when, when uh, Jefferson arrived in 1790 to take up the job as Secretary of State, Hamilton had already been in office. I think his uh, first day in office was maybe 
September 11th of 1789, if I can recall. That's right. That's so right. he's already been up and running for a while. And when Jefferson arrives, he finds that Hamilton has been very, very busy doing, as we'll talk about this morning, a number of things with which uh, Jefferson is greatly troubled. So I think he's a latecomer to meeting Hamilton, and his, his um, knowledge of him up until that point has really been kind of secondhand through, uh, through Madison. And it's also important to point out that the other advantage that Hamilton had in these epic cabinet battles was not only had he been on the job since September 11, 1789, he, of course, had been at Washington's side throughout the Revolutionary War. Right. Now, I've never served in combat, but I'm told that it's a bonding experience like no other. And even though Hamilton and Washington had their points of friction during uh, the time that Hamilton was at Washington's side during the war, nonetheless, those two men had bonded incredibly during those years together, uh, where they were basically fighting for the existence of this uh, of this potential nation. So Hamilton had that advantage of understanding Washington's mind, I think, better than Jefferson did. Yeah, that's a great point. I have, can I ask a follow-up question for both of you? Two separate sure. questions. Maybe, maybe this for Steve uh, initially. So when I think of Hamilton, especially the younger Hamilton, <clears throat> given his background, the word that comes to mind is ambition. Is it fair to describe Hamilton as ambition? Sure, absolutely. There's a letter, and I can't remember who it was to, but it was, I believe, early in the 1770s where Hamilton is uh, sort of talking about his background and his chances of getting ahead, and he sort of concludes that letter by saying, I wish there were a war, um, yeah. something to that effect. Yeah, it's actually earlier than that, Chris. He's, uh, it was, uh, it was, it's one of the first letters that we have from Hamilton, and he would have been uh, depending on where you peg his birth, some people say it was 1755, some say 1757 as the date of his birth. But he was somewhere between 11 and 13 when he wrote a letter to his good friend, uh, Edward Stevens, saying that he wished there was a war. So he's a young teenage boy when he makes that statement. Uh, and I, I like to point out to some folks who use that as evidence of Hamilton's alleged militarism. I, this, this is a teenage boy talking, and I don't think it's all that unusual to hear teenage boys speak that way. So I think sometimes a little too much emphasis is put on that. I wish there was a war comment, but your overall, your general point is absolutely correct. Uh, Hamilton was extremely ambitious. Um, you know, this new musical that's turned him into a Broadway celebrity uh, does a good job of pointing out that this is a man who was not going to throw away a shot. He was going to take advantage of every opportunity that was presented to him. And he's reading and working around the clock for purposes of, as he would put it, improving his station in life. And initially it's through a military career, and then eventually it's through acts of what I would consider to be statesmanship. But this is a man who yearned to improve his lot in life and make a mark on the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I read that line about I wish there was a war, and again, I'm not sure if that's exactly how he words it, was that, again, as you were saying, Steve, this is, a, this is somebody who seems by nature to, to love honor, but also wants to, he knows that he merits honor, but he, and he's willing to work for it and earn it, but, but he doesn't inherit that because of his background, as you were that's saying great. earlier. So yeah. what, well, better, what better way for a young man to 
to make a name for himself and sort of move up in the in the That's rank right. of honor. So very well put. So, yeah. So again, that reflection of that ambition. I wonder um, if, and maybe Todd or Steve, anybody, but Todd, we want to jump in on this. I wonder, yeah. if, given um, Jefferson's background, which was very different, if Jefferson wasn't somewhat suspicious of that ambitious nature uh, of Hamilton, and whether or not that sort of, sort of played into his distrust of him. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I, mean, I would argue that Jefferson, in his own way, was, of course, deeply ambitious. I mean, you, you cannot do the things that Jefferson did and set out to do in his life without ambition. But I think the difference is if Hamilton's ambition was sort of naked and on display and visible to everybody, I think Jefferson typically tried to hide that, uh, maybe in the way that a, a gentleman planner of the aristocratic elite in Virginia would do. Uh, where it's not considered, you know, couth or good manners or good form to act as if you're ambitious or to seek things. Uh, obviously, at that time, candidates did not uh, run for office. They stood for office. They didn't shake hands. They allowed their friends to go out and, and uh, organize for them. And I think that's the kind of genteel world of politicking that Jefferson came up in. So I think while he was deeply ambitious himself, I think he had to, in a sense, mask that or deny that in some ways and appear to be ambitious without seeming that way. And then when you have Hamilton, um, who, as, as Jefferson, at, uh, I mean, at various times, clearly thinks of him as a, this, this upstart, um, not only does he, is he ambitious, but he's, he doesn't even have the good form to try to mask it or hide it in some way. And so I think that would be part of the suspicion that, that gets at him, uh, part, of the, part of the reason for the suspicion that Jefferson uh, would have of Hamilton uh, that, that sort of is one of the things that is that he would find off-putting um, right up front. And I just wanted to say one more thing as well to just build on the, the very good point that Steve made about the, the military partnership of Jefferson, uh, sorry, of Washington and Hamilton. Um, I think when Jefferson joined the cabinet, I think he was expecting that he and Washington would be able to connect because of their vast social um, connections, I think. The fact that they're both Virginians, the fact that they're both of a certain class, uh, and although Washington was, uh, what, 11 years older than Jefferson, uh, so they're not quite of the same generation, uh, they are certainly closer in age than, than Washington was to Hamilton. And so I think in a lot of ways, Washington and Jefferson had what Jefferson was counting on to sort of make him the, in many ways, the preeminent figure of the cabinet. He didn't have the direct military experience that Hamilton had been through, but he could pull, fall back on these and, and connect to these, these social ties and class ties coming out of Virginia uh, planter elite slave owning culture. And I think that's something that Jefferson expected would play to his favor. And as we see in the 1790s, it, it didn't seem to count for as much with Washington as perhaps Jefferson thought it should. And so you've got the personal resentment of this ambitious upstart that Jefferson feels toward Hamilton. And then you've got what, what I think must have been the kind of disappointment that Jefferson didn't automatically rate higher with Washington uh, from the outset because of that shared background. Those are terrific points that Todd has just made. So on one level, you have this ambitious upstart immigrant, uh, you know, and that immigrant status does play something of a role, I think, particularly in Adam, John Adams's dislike of Hamilton, but I think it's also there in Jefferson as well. But in addition to being an ambitious 
immigrant, uh, Hamilton was the kind of person that would get in your face, in a sense. He was very direct. He didn't shy from personal confrontation. Uh, Todd well, well knows Jefferson hated those kinds of face-to-face confrontation and much preferred using surrogates to counter the arguments of people like Hamilton. So, um, but the bigger point that Todd just made that's really, it, to me, it speaks volumes about George Washington, who I know is not the topic for today. Uh, but the fact that Washington does, I guess, in my view, kind of grow beyond his Virginia parochialism. Uh, and uh, he and Hamilton see the world through the same set of eyes. But I think the critical formation period for both of those men Washington and Hamilton was their experience during that war when that army, of course, was fighting for its life, not just against the British, but against the, arguably, the incompetence of the, uh, the Confederation Congress and of the various states that re- refused to provide just the basics for any army to, to conduct itself, you know, clothing, weapons, food. Um, so the view, the worldview of Washington and Hamilton uh, they both shared, I think, a very similar worldview, and that's something that Jefferson just couldn't, uh, he had not gone through that experience at Valley Forge and Morristown and elsewhere, and that, that's, that gives Hamilton, I think, a critical edge over Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great points. That, and that, again, you brought up Washington, Steve, so, and again, he's not necessarily the focus, but he is sort of the link. Sure, <laughs> sure. So, now, just a factual question. Of course, Washington and Jefferson knew each other before Jefferson left for France, yes. right? They were familiar with each other. Yes. But since you brought up Washington, my sense is, from Washington's perspective, did he, again, there's that, that, close, there's that close bond with Hamilton that you're describing, Steve, that comes from the common, common effort during the war. Um, is, would it be fair to say that Washington thought that somehow his friendship with both Hamilton and Jefferson would would be enough to make them friends as well? Interesting question. I'm not sure that we can answer that or not. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead, Todd. Yeah, it's a great question because I think it. Um, I mean, the, the the famous point about Washington, I think, is that he's just a man of such incredible control and self-discipline that friendship with him was in many ways not possible in the way it would be for uh, other members of a cabinet and their president or things like that. His his stature was, I, I think, just still unequaled um, among presidents in terms of being held above that way. And I think as we as we look at the letters uh, that we'll get to in a little bit here today that, that for this uh, reading, um, both of them are sort of appealing to Washington, but writing... I don't think quite as as friends necessarily, because I think that's that's a difficult element. Um, I do think Washington sort of fully expected that the cabinet would come together and do its job, that the conflicts could be resolved. And what we don't have assigned for today, but what, uh, as Steve well knows, takes place in and around all these letters back in 1792 were um, letters from Washington to both men, essentially urging them to back off a little bit to, to calm down, to see if they couldn't reason together. And so I think that idea of trying to build consensus is, is very, very important to Washington. That's the way he wants to govern. He didn't see himself as a partisan political leader. 
Uh, and even though the Federalist Party by 1792, you know, one could argue both parties are clearly emerging, if not emerged by 1792, it is not really until Washington's second term that he will really, uh, I would argue, behaves like a hardcore Federalist partisan, uh, which you see in his treatment of the democratic societies, in his position on the Jay Treaty and in the Jay Treaty debate, um, and then, of course, his famous farewell address, uh, I would suggest, is really not about a pox on both parties, but a pox on the other party, the, the Jeffersonians, and, and what they're doing uh, against the government um, and the constituted authorities, which is how the Federalists saw themselves. So I think it's a great question, Chris, you bring up, um, but it's, it's one that's got a lot of different... I think we probably need four or five more webinars to get at all that, <laughs> which would be a good idea, I think. I'd suggest that. But, but I think there's a lot going on there, and I think it does have to do with this unique figure that, that Washington really was. Yeah, just, just to echo what Todd said nice and succinctly, yeah, Washington hoped for a government of national unity. He never would have used that particular term, but that, that was his desire. And he does go, I would say, to Herculean lengths to try to keep both Jefferson and Hamilton happy, in a sense, and, and encourage them to work together. Um, I don't want to take the low road here, but all the while that Washington is doing that, unfortunately, Jefferson is undermining Washington um, from outside his administration by hiring people like Philip Pernod to write anti-administration editorials while Jefferson is serving in Washington's administration. So Jefferson is undercutting Washington for a good part of this time, even though, as Todd, I think, accurately said, uh, Washington is doing his best, certainly in his first term, to try, try to remain above the fray, try to serve as that unifying chief of state. The problem for Jefferson was that Hamilton was winning most of the arguments. And, uh, you know, you, I, I can understand why Jefferson decided to sort of take the battle outside into the press, uh, but it's always struck me that perhaps the more honorable course of action would have been to uh, confront President Washington directly, but that, that just wasn't in Jefferson's style. Yeah, yeah. So, can I, great, all great points and thoughts, can I just uh, take a moment to remind our um, participants who've joined us. Uh, we've got some good questions coming in, but let me remind you, that if you send a question in the chat, please send it to everybody so that um, Professor Knott and Professor Estes, if they see it, they can feel free to jump in directly on those questions. Um, one question came from Shailen, but I don't know that it got to everybody. Uh, and he mentions Madison, and since you just mentioned Philip Perneau, Steve, right, who was an old buddy of Madison's from uh, from the College of New Jersey. It was, he was actually a friend of Madison's, and right. um, mm -hmm. and uh, it reminds us of that connection of Madison to Hamilton at first, and then Madison to Jefferson. Um, so, and again, I know this isn't about Madison, but it seems like in light of what um, I think Todd mentioned earlier, Madison's kind of a pivotal figure in this as well. So we're talking about Washington's connection between the two, Madison's role in the, in the sort of split uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson. Can I leave you say something about that and where we think, when, when did, because my impression is initially Jefferson gets back, or at least before Jefferson get, gets back, uh, my impression is Madison is initially saying, look, Hamilton's sort of on our side, he's a federalist. 
Um, you can kind of trust them to a certain extent. I can't pinpoint any particular letters, but I yeah. seem to recall these sorts of things being mentioned. But then, um, as we know, Madison sides entirely with Jefferson on this question. And Todd, I know you've written on this as well, and um, and um, you've studied study with Lance Banning, who who, uh, who who wrote one of the best books on Madison. So where does Madison fit into this? Yeah, it's a, it's a really key question, because I think Madison is also hopeful when the new government begins in 1789 that there will be the, the prevalence of what he famously called a one-time public spiritedness, that there would be a, a way in which people would think about the greater good, that they would reject single, uh, singular, narrow regional interests or occupational interests and think in terms of the good of the country and realize that it's sometimes, even though a particular bill in Congress or a particular measure might not benefit their section or the people they identify with, it would be good for some other section of the country. But then in return, the next year, the next session, the other parts of the country that benefited the first time would similarly yield. Um, but early in Congress, Madison, I think, was greatly disillusioned. Uh, he, of course, ends up uh, starting off the new government in the House of Representatives from Virginia, as you know. And um, Madison's greatly disillusioned by what he sees as the advantage taking of some of the New England and Northern uh, congressmen who end up becoming Federalists. And from Madison's point of view, he's just bitterly disillusioned at that lack of public spiritedness, at the kind of intense, um, not, not partisanship so much, but the intense pursuit of uh, policy issues and agendas to benefit a certain section of the country, um, which will become, of course, part of his large critique against banks, against the, um, the moneyed wealth and establishment, against uh, the idea of industrial and manufacturing and financial kind of nation that Hamilton wants to try to build. So I think Madison is gradually disillusioned as both he and Hamilton, I think, simultaneously are realizing, hey, we agreed on the Constitution and we agreed to support this. And we famously wrote, uh, co-wrote the Federalists together. But actually, we were maybe never at the same point of, of departure in terms of how we thought about things. So I think just as Jefferson is kind of recoiling, Madison is as well. And I think reaching out to Philip Freneau is a way of trying to, um, I mean, their goal is not to undermine Washington, I think, but their goal is clearly to block Hamilton and the Hamiltonian supporters in Congress. But of course, as Steve notes, the, the end result of that is that they, that Jefferson is in fact undermining the administration that he's serving in. Uh, even though he would not say, I'm, I'm out to get Washington, his thought is, of course, I'm out to stop Hamilton. And I think Madison shared that perspective very much. That's great. Yeah, because, I, again, my sense was, to, uh, again, Jefferson doesn't return until 1790. Uh, Madison is in Congress and sees things. And I would even suggest maybe um, Madison saw the wind blowing a certain way for certain Federalists, the type you were mentioning. Even when Madison, uh, Madison sort of Again, not to turn our attention toward the creation of the Bill of Rights too much, but when Madison introduced amendments or wanted to discuss amendments in the first Congress as a matter of honor, and there were sort of gentlemen's agreements made that we would at least discuss these, and there were certain Federalists who opposed even discussing these amendments, that might have been one of the first instances that other right. things built upon. So it seems, again, that Madison is the one who's seeing this, you know, these different, as you put it nicely, points of departure between him and his understanding of 
through a sort of Republican lens of what the Constitution means, and Hamilton and others in, what they, in their sort of Federalist view uh, of what the Constitution means. So, so can we, what are the, can we, so again, I'm looping back a little bit, Washington, I remember in one of those Washington letters to either Jefferson or Hamilton, I think it was the Jefferson, where he said, put aside your differences because your differences are, are insignificant compared to your, your common goal, right? What you have in common is much more important than, those, than what might be Washington seemed to consider initially petty differences. So we talk about what are the differences in their political views and how do those sort of emerge into uh, these two really first great political parties in the country? Well, I guess I would argue that uh, one of the differences would be that for Hamilton, as he put it, I think as early as 1780, he wanted to convince his fellow citizens to think, as Hamilton put it, to think continentally, to think of themselves as Americans first and foremost uh, before they thought of themselves as New Yorkers and Virginians. Uh, so Hamilton, I think, is very much... Uh, for lack of a better term, a nationalist. And uh, Jefferson, I think, is still going to consider Virginia his nation. That may be a bit of an overstatement, but um, I think I could defend it. Uh, so Hamilton's got this, uh, as he put it, continental outlook. Uh, Jefferson, I think, is more, consider uh, more uh, uh, inclined to favor the rights of states uh, or the powers of the various states. Um, and then the, from there, there's a whole array of differences over the National Bank for obvious reasons. Jefferson sees that as a, both a corrupting influence, but also something that's going to enhance the power of the national government at the expense of the states. Uh, they're going to differ over the assumption of the debts held over from the Revolutionary War. Again, Jefferson's going to see Hamilton's assumption plan as further binding uh, the American people to the national government. And then, of course, they're going to really differ over a foreign policy question, which a lot of times students, I think, find this surprising that already foreign policy is a source of division in the American polity. But they're going to differ fairly uh, significantly over the, their interpretation of the French Revolution and what would be the appropriate American response to that revolution. Hamilton's going to see it as an example of a revolution descending into, you know, a reign of terror. And Jefferson's going to sort of justify some elements, perhaps, of that reign of terror as the price one has to pay to overthrow the old order. So it's foreign policy, it's domestic policy, it's how one interprets the Constitution in Hamilton's view. There are such things as implied powers. Uh, in Jefferson's view, you should read the Constitution fairly strictly. So uh, that's a very quick overview of some of the differences between Hamilton and Jefferson. Yeah, that's a very succinct summary. I think the only thing I would just maybe say to, to add a little bit to that would just be to, to note that, again, I think you can see these differences on display as, um, as really reflecting two very different visions for how the country should, should be developing not only in economics, um, not only in finance and banking, but also in foreign policy and the, the role of the U.S. in the world, the, the way the U.S. should conduct business, but also within the government itself, where power 
should really lie. Uh, Hamilton is very comfortable with the strong um, administrative state, very comfortable with the strong executive branch, and very comfortable with strong presidential leadership at the national level. Uh, Jefferson, of course, thinks all of those are potentially tyrannical and that they're the kinds of things that could lead to a loss of liberty and, and freedom. And so I just think that the two of them together, as they clashed over nearly every single issue in the early 1790s and then beyond, you can see the, you know, another little um, uh, piece falling into place, if you will, of these two very different visions for how the country should grow. And I think those visions, for the most part, can be tracked on to the development of the first two political parties, the Federalist largely following and sharing the Hamiltonian vision for how the country should develop and pursue political uh, policies, as well as foreign policy initiatives. And of course, the Jeffersonian vision being reflected in the, the Democratic Republican Party. They both came to have their own newspapers, essentially their own house organs, Freneau uh, and the National Gazette. And uh, the, the Federalist paper, of course, was John Fenno's Gazette of the United States. And there were a number of other prominent papers as well, but those were two of the central ones. So you begin to have this sort of entire early proto-party apparatus, I think, that grows up around them. But I think they really are linked, as Steve was suggesting, to these fundamentally different visions that the two men held. And I think in these letters that they each write to uh, the 1792 letters we looked at, where Hamilton is describing the situation to uh, Edward Carrington, um, who's a Virginia Federalist, and Jefferson's writing to Washington to try to explain himself, I think we can see very clearly how each of the two men understand things that are happening. And if we put those together and step back as, as historians, then I think we can sort of analyze those and say, uh, and see the, the vast gulf between the two of them in terms of all these visions. Yeah, I would just add, if I could, um, I do think it's important. We're focusing on the conflict between Hamilton and Jefferson. I might slightly differ with Todd here a little bit in a comment he made earlier that Jefferson's objections were to Hamilton and not were to Hamilton and not to Washington. And that's true to a point. Um, it was a, a political suicide to be publicly discrediting George Washington, at least certainly in the first term. Uh, but I, I guess the point I want to try to make is that the policies that Hamilton pursued were the policies of George Washington. Uh, I think there's a tendency, uh, that I'm not directing this at Todd, I just think uh, elsewhere there's a tendency to want to separate Hamilton from Washington and thereby preserve his kind of above-the-fray uh, chief-of-state uh, reputation. Uh, but the fact is that I think Washington did share, the, he didn't have the depth of understanding that Hamilton had about some of these economic questions, but I think he did agree with the thrust of what Hamilton was attempting to accomplish through these economic proposals, which was to create a uh, political order that would reach the point where it could surpass the great European powers in terms of economic power. Um, so, uh, again, it's a long-winded way of saying Washington supported the National Bank, Washington supported the Assumption Plan, Washington shares Hamilton's view of the French Revolution, uh, and, and we've got to be careful not to, to, to sort of just pull Washington out of this and see this as a conflict between Hamilton and Jefferson with Washington sitting on the sidelines. Uh, that's, 
the point I wanted to try to make. Yeah, and actually, I don't think we we have. I don't think there's too much difference between between us on that point. Actually, Steve, I would okay. agree because, but you know, one of the reasons that Jefferson leaves the cabinet at the end of uh, what 1793 is that he sees pretty clearly exactly what you just articulated on every single matter, foreign and domestic. Washington is siding with Hamilton, or Hamilton is siding with Washington. There's really not a whole lot of space between the president and the Treasury Secretary, and I think Jefferson realizes that and begins to pull back and realize the only way I, I, I can't do this in the cabinet. Uh, I'm, I'm outvoted. I don't have the numbers here. I've got to regroup and, and go somewhere else to fight this. Uh, and although he's careful, I think, as you note, for those very reasons, Jefferson is very careful to um, be solicitous of Washington and to be careful what he says about him until later, when even the newspapers will jump in and criticize Washington. That's You can't do that early on. But I think you're right. Jefferson does see very clearly that there's not a whole lot of difference between Jefferson and Hamilton, because I can't think of a single policy issue where Washington sides with Jefferson over Hamilton. I think in every uh, every single case, uh, Washington is there with Hamilton. And I think that by the end of 1793, which is just the first year of that second term of Washington's, Jefferson's seen enough. Yeah. yeah. I, I think Todd did, did, did uh, uh, you could argue that Hamilton lost the, the battle over whether to, uh, rec uh, to greet citizens or to accept the visit of citizens today to present his credentials. Is that, is that an accurate statement? I think Jefferson said he should be greeted. He should be allowed. Yeah, yeah. Hamilton was saying no, and ultimately Washington sided with Jefferson. Okay, yeah. yeah but, yeah. but you're right. I mean, 99.8% of the time, Washington's mm -hmm. leaning towards Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, uh, lots of great points there. Um, um, again, we've got a number of really good questions coming in, which hopefully we'll get to eventually. Some of them are pointing forward towards the election of 1890. <coughs> I'd like to hold off on some of those until we sort of get to that point of the conversation. But, but if I can just mention uh, to illustrate uh, one thing where the, 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 you can really clearly see the differences, and I'm just echoing what Steve and Todd, you've already brought up. When you just look at the, the national, their opinions on the national bank, and Steve, you kind of alluded to this earlier, or mentioned this earlier as well. You can see from the where they begin their opinion how how far apart they are in a certain way in their understanding of the Constitution and the emphasis that they place on either the national government or the or the state governments. If I remember correctly, and these weren't part of the readings for today, but Jefferson, Tom uh, Hamilton starts by saying, "Look, there are implied powers in every government." And, and our national government that's established by this Constitution is no exception. And then his argument from there, uh, you know, builds on that. Whereas if I remember correctly, Todd Jefferson begins by saying, if you really want to understand the, the, the constitutional powers of the national government, you've got to look at the Tenth Amendment, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or start with the importance of the Tenth Amendment. Um, and, uh, and, and so... <laughs> Right away, you start from a position on Hamilton's part of saying, let's assume there are more powers there, whereas from Jefferson's perspective, we need to assume that um, that there are, um, uh, we need to put emphasis on the limited amount of powers that are given, and it just sort of, the split grows from there, and then, of course, they arrive at different conclusions. But but now, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, since, again, you both brought up the, uh, the readings, some of the letters mentioned for today, 
I find them fascinating um, because of how they're each characterizing each other. Um, both of them are characterizing, it seems to me, each other as fanatics of a certain sort. Um, Jefferson's a French fanatic. He's, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, fanatic in other ways. But I also found it interesting in one of the letters from Hamilton that he, he describes Jefferson as also ambitious. This may have been the letter to Bayard. Yeah. Jefferson's ambitious. He actually kind of describes Jefferson as just a sort of ordinary politician. He, he's the populist in a certain way, uh, not in a later sense necessarily, but he's, he's not going to do anything that will diminish his political popularity. Um, so his supposed claims to being a man of principle are really just reduced to political calculation. So he's ambitious as well in his own way. So I, again, I just find it interesting how they're, how they're going after each other's sort of personalities in these letters. And I didn't know if either of you had thoughts on, on the accuracy of their accusations. I think that um, the, the James Bayard letter from 1801 is a fascinating piece because, of course, the context there um, is the, um, the election of the House to actually break the tie between Jefferson and Burr. And so Hamilton here is making the argument, and it's sort of, if we look at the other documents we read for this session, we know their history. We know that anybody, is, as Hamilton says, would be, if anybody is going to oppose Jefferson, it would be me, and I have on so many ways. But he sort of sketches out here, I think, in that letter to Bayard, a kind of expectation of what Hamilton thinks the Jefferson presidency will be like, and he doesn't think it's going to be very successful. He thinks that Jefferson is going to be a rather weak, ineffectual leader, that he's not going to be the sort of zealot that his strongest followers want him to be, that he's probably not going to overturn and destroy everything about the federalist system um, that, that his strongest supporters wanted him to do, and that he's always going to be wavering, looking for popularity, trying to find the most popular course. Uh, because he's conflict-diverse, he's not going to pick these fights. And I think Hamilton really thinks that by 1804, the Federalist Party will have gotten rid of the baggage of John Adams and the older conflicts. They can run someone new with a clean slate, not have to defend an Adams administration that Hamilton did not think was very good at all or successful at all. And they can go after a weakened, ineffectual Jefferson. And so I think the, it's, it's interesting to look at how he forecasts what the Jefferson presidency will be like, because, of course, it doesn't turn out to be quite, quite that way. Uh, um, in all those ways, and certainly not in terms of, I think, the way Jefferson uses executive power. If we look at Louisiana and some other matters, if we look at Jefferson supporting the impeachment of some Federalist judges, he does do, in many ways, I think, things Hamilton thought that he wouldn't uh, or wouldn't pursue. And I think he also becomes clearly much more popular and arguably successful in ways that deeply frustrate Hamilton and that complicate plans for, for 1804. And even in Hamilton's last weeks, he is still writing letters to Federalists in Massachusetts and elsewhere, uh, you know, making plans for 1804, making plans for elections, thinking about how to reboot federalism as he does in those years between uh, 1800 and 18, 1804. But I think it's interesting to get a sense of, of what he expects the Jefferson presidency would be like based on his conflicts with Jefferson in the 1790s. As many of you all know, I'm an admirer of Hamilton, but I have to say I will give this to Jefferson. I think Jefferson was 
far better political tactician, political strategist. Um, I think he repeatedly ran circles around Hamilton and the Federalists. And some of what Todd just mentioned, I think, is, is evidence of that, that Hamilton had something of a tin ear, I think, when it came to electoral politics. Um, and Jefferson was really a master at that game. Uh, Hamilton does, of course, have some grudging positive things to say about Jefferson after he gets past the contemptible hypocrite comment, <laughs> which, which is that Jefferson, as opposed to Burr, Jefferson actually has principles. He actually believes in things. Uh, Burr, according to Hamilton, and actually according to almost every major founder, uh, lacked any sense of, of principle and any, any sort of uh, anchor, um, always sort of shifting with the prevailing winds. Uh, Hamilton doesn't see that entirely in Jefferson, although Todd did point out a few things for Hamilton seems to suggest that. But on the whole, I think Hamilton thought that Jefferson was a man of principle. And he also suggests that Jefferson will defend presidential prerogatives. Um, and he saw that in Jefferson when Jefferson served as Secretary of State. Uh, and it's true, Jefferson rejected, uh, as Secretary of State, rebuffed Senate appeals for various types of information and uh, what we today we might call micromanaging. So uh, Hamilton did seem to think that Jefferson would defend many of the presidential prerogatives, uh, perhaps particularly in the foreign policy and security arena. Mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. So um, uh, you're, uh, Steve, you're uh, addressing a question Shalen uh, submitted. He, he writes, Dr. Not commented on Hamilton's acts of statesmanship. So he would like to hear you comment on his statesmanship displayed in his support for Jefferson uh, in his letter to Bayard, and also to discuss the price personally and politically that Hamilton paid for his support of Jefferson um, in, this, um, in this election. Um, uh, so how did Hamilton fare as a result of this, perhaps? I, I don't think Hamilton's support of Jefferson uh, hurt him that much. I think the real damage that Hamilton had done to himself was a few months prior to that when he circulated that pamphlet about the failings of John Adams and the Adams presidency, mm -hmm. supposedly thinking it would stay private, but it didn't, of course, and I'm not sure he really expected it to. But anyways, that was the more damaging thing. This Even Hamilton's allies believed that that pamphlet did more damage to Hamilton than it did to Adams. So I don't see Hamilton's <clears throat> uh, advocacy, uh, uh, lobbying Bayard and the others to support Jefferson as doing a lot of damage to Hamilton's reputation. In some ways, the damage had, had already been done. Um, so, okay. but, I, but I would say that, that that is one example, endorsing Jefferson over Burr is an example of Hamilton's capacity for, for statesmanship, and I, I could name others as well, but I'll leave it at that for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think Hamilton, as he said several times, if anybody would be expected to oppose Jefferson, it would be me, and I certainly do on most ways, but, you know, there, there's, there's such a thing as a, something much worse than Jefferson, and I think, again, partly because Hamilton really does seem to think that Jefferson would be ineffectual, kind of wishy-washy as a president, 
that he's not the danger that Federalist newspapers have accused him of, of being likely to be, both in the 1796 and the 1800 campaigns. Um, and I think Hamilton thinks that Jefferson can be, uh, you know, hemmed in or you can attack him or push him in some ways and keep him from doing things that would be too extreme. He doesn't think anyone would ever have any control over Burr. Burr is just really not only a, an, un, an unprincipled man, but a totally unpredictable person. And I think um, uh, others shared that sense, uh, even those who knew Burr less well than, than Hamilton did after you know decades of conflict in New York uh, courtrooms and politics. So yeah, I don't think uh, Hamilton really suffered much from that uh, because certainly in the years after 1801, Federalists around the country still wrote to Hamilton, still looked to him, still sought his advice, still sought his endorsement, still tried to make plans with him um, for 1804, but also for elections in between at the state and local levels. So I think Hamilton remains an important party leader, a very important voice, respected among Federalists. Uh, he has damaged himself, but as Steve notes, those were largely self-damaging uh, things that he had done. Uh, some of the intemperance, the the lack of wisdom in, in, in the, uh, the Adams pamphlet and, and those kinds of things, um, that was certainly a, a black mark on his name, but it was not at all disqualifying um, for most Federalists. Great. Can I, uh, uh, just a, uh, a sort of quick factual question. Do we know, was there correspondence between Hamilton and Jefferson after the election of 1800? Or are you either of you aware of any correspondence? I don't think that, I don't think there was. Yeah, I don't know of any either. I just didn't, no. uh, wasn't sure about that. No. No, I don't no. think so. And I also think if I'm, Maybe Steve knows better than I do, but um, I don't even think we have any record of Jefferson making a comment even when Hamilton died. I don't think there's even no, a letter where he says, I'm so glad that bastard finally got it or, you know, he had this coming or anything like that. I think he I think there's not only no contact that I know of, um, but there's not even any even after Hamilton's gone. I don't think Jefferson uh, until later uh, comes back and, and writes him about that. The only thing, Todd, you're, you're basically right. The, there's a letter that Jefferson writes to his daughter, who I can't oh. recall where she was at the time, informing her of various deaths. I think she was overseas. Mm -hmm. And he mentions uh, the death of, I think, Samuel Adams, maybe. I could be off on the timing here. Alexander Hamilton and some others. So Hamilton is just listed <laughs> amongst them. But I looked long and hard to see if I could find evidence of any Jefferson reaction uh, mm -hmm. to Hamilton's death, but it, it's not there. Yeah, it's very interesting. So the other the other question is a sort of broader question that has come up uh, in light of your recent um, very thoughtful uh, comments. Um, so thinking of how we get to 1800 in that election, my uh, this may be an oversimplification, but my sense is, in terms of the development of the parties, Madison and Jefferson. Are as you were saying, Steve. They're they're good at politics. And this is by I know I'm not as familiar with Jefferson on this. I do know Madison was a very good politician, um, and had the reputation maybe as being one of the best politicians because of his experience in the um, uh, Continental and then Confederation Congresses. But they seem to do a good job of strengthening the the the, the party, and it and it gains momentum by the late 1790s. What's going on with the Federalists? Why are they in such a dysfunctional state by the end of the, 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 the first decade of our 
Well, look, it doesn't help that you have an alleged Federalist President John Adams and you have Alexander Hamilton basically hating one another and not cooperating with each other. So you have a division at the top, which is very unhealthy for the party. Uh, but there are other factors as well, one of which was that the Federalists simply were not good at uh, a, a street politics, which is, you know, starting to take root. I don't want to overstate this too much, but I do think Jefferson and Madison were much more attuned to the importance of, uh, of public opinion, in a sense, we would call it today. Uh, so maybe this fulfills the stereotype of the Federalists as being the party of elitists. But they just weren't that great. And Hamilton, by the way, acknowledges this fact belatedly in 1802 when he proposes the creation of a Christian constitutional society. So they're going to use the... Who did that? I'm sorry, Steve. Who did that? Hamilton did. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he basically said, it's a fascinating letter. I can't recall who he wrote it to, but it's, it's a proposal. Bayard. Oh, it's to Bayard. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. And, um, you know, he says we, we need to use the, you know, the churches, particularly in New England and in the mid-Atlantic states, could be a kind of source of grassroots support for Federalists. And, you know, if we play, play <laughs> we take advantage of the perception that the Jeffersonians are somewhat hostile to organized religion, that they're sympathetic to the French Revolution, that was hostile to religion, you know, all of that stuff that we might be able to counter their, uh, you know, success at street politics and building coalitions. So it's, it's a really fascinating letter that Hamilton writes, which is basically an, an acknowledgement that Jefferson and his party have been cleaning our clocks repeatedly for almost 10 years now. It's great, great. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true. And I think um, Hamilton does sort of belatedly come to realize the mechanisms that the Jeffersonians have used to build their party. It's not only newspapers and local papers as well, but it is the, the conscious effort of, of organizing of what we would today call grassroots uh, party building and things like that, sort of the equivalent of, of going door to door and, and uh, talking to people. And they're very, very good at that. And the Federalists could do in the Jay Treaty debate, for example, they, they did, um, petition drives, and they uh, uh, cultivated the newspapers. They held some public meetings, but they weren't always good at that, and they certainly weren't comfortable with that. It just didn't jive with what they thought of as the proper way to practice politics. Um, and so the Jeffersonians were far more tolerant and willing to do that. Uh, and I think one of the great uh, stories of American politics is that what was designed to kill the Jeffersonian Democratic-Republican Party um, that is, the Alien and Sedition Acts actually wound up backfiring colossally on the Federalists. Not only were the prosecutions of some of those hapless editors and uh, political opponents just heavy-handed and, and ridiculous, but it also wound up firing up uh, what we would call the party base in some ways. And so the Democratic-Republicans from 1798 and 99 and 1800 reacted against that. They realized that their their party and their political livelihood was really at stake, and they, they took advantage of that and organized and built the grassroots efforts. And that's why, despite the closeness of the presidential contest of 1800, the Republicans dominated the elections for House. Um, they controlled, they won many of the elections for uh, the state Senate, uh, the upper houses of the state legislatures, 
which of course chose the senators. And so Jefferson got an entire majority uh, in 1801 when he took office. So it took him, what, 35, 36 ballots to win the presidency. But underneath that, thanks to this grassroots effort, was a tremendously successful organizing effort by the Republicans. And I think part of what Hamilton uh, and some other Federalists talked about in that um, Christian Constitutional Society was, you know, how do we fight back? How do we, uh, how do we organize ourselves to counter what has been done to us? It's sort of like later in, in the next political generation, um, the Whigs imitating the Democrats uh, and winning the election of 1840. And Democratic strategists look at each other afterwards and say, you know, what happened? And one of them says to the other, uh, well, we taught them how to beat us. You know, we taught them how to use our methods and our system and our operations and our organization. And they came back and used it to put William Henry Harrison uh, in, the op in office over Martin Van Buren in 1840. And I think in some ways the Federalists, uh, you know, Hamilton recognized what was being done to his party. And even though Federalists, as Steve noted, weren't entirely comfortable doing that, they at least knew what needed to be done even if they may have lacked the willpower or the aptitude to actually be able to do it. And just to build on Todd's excellent point, um, it's important to remember that George Washington dies in December 1799. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can almost see in some of the writings of, of the Jeffersonians uh, the, the sort of secret delight that this guy is now finally gone. Now they're really going to have an opportunity. Uh, now that... Washington's protective shield has been removed from the Federalists. This is going to present some great opportunities. So back to Chris's original question, I mean, one of the factors for the decline of the Federalists is Washington's passing. And with Washington's passing, Hamilton loses that sort of restraining influence. I think Todd mentioned earlier Hamilton's tendency towards intemperance. I'm not sure Hamilton writes that letter or circulates that letter criticizing John Adams so vociferously, have Washington still alive. I realize that's a counterfactual. I can't prove it. Uh, but Washington did seem to act as a restraining influence on Hamilton's worst impulses. And had Washington been able to live another 10 years or so, maybe, maybe the Federalists might have done a little bit better. Uh, but let's face it, they by 1816, the Federalists basically run their last run is not the right word, as Todd pointed out earlier, stand their last candidate for president. And by 1820, they're pretty well dead. There's some pockets in New England, but that's it. Wow. Yeah, that's a great point. So as a clarification, um, Jay just wondered uh, uh, about unpacking more of the divisions inside the Federalists. So um, you, you both mentioned uh, two particular moments in the 1790s, the Jay Treaty and the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm. which, um, you know, again, it seems to me allowed the Jeffersonian Republicans to use those as examples that those Federalists are, in the case of the Jay Treaty, sort of pro-British, um, you know, in parentheses, monarchical, um, that take advantage of popular dissatisfaction with the Alien and Sedition Acts as, uh, and therefore label the Federalists as anti-Republican. Um, did the... Were there other divisions within the Federalists, or was it, was it as Steve, as you were saying earlier, really just kind of the, the, the personality differences between Hamilton and Adams, or were the Federalists themselves entirely agreed on, on the Jay Treaty and the um, Alien and Sedition Acts? Do we know? Well, Todd's the, Todd is the world's greatest expert on the Jay Treaty. So <laughs> no doubt. There's no doubt about that. 
<laughs> Thank you. Well, just just to start off, I mean, um, I think there were some divisions within federalism that actually had always been minimized as long as Washington was in power and alive, as Steve was noting earlier. Um, not only was it a great and effective Washington's name and power and influence, was that a great method, as Jefferson was deeply frustrated by, for Hamilton to be able to enact a variety of policies that Hamilton and Washington both supported, but it was also a way to sort of minimize Federalist squabbling, because it was very clear that Washington was in charge and he was the great leader. Uh, John Adams, of course, did not command anywhere near the respect or admiration that Washington had. I mean, no one could, but Adams in many ways was particularly ill-suited to do that. Uh, Adams was also a very disengaged, I guess, uh, president. He spent about half of each year uh, back on his farm in Massachusetts. And so he was just simply not around very much uh, to do as much. And so other Federalists had to fill in the gaps. Um, and, and there were obviously some regional divisions between Northern and Southern Federalists, slave-owning and non-slave-owning Federalists. Um, but I think the, the Federalists also just still had always subscribed to that older view of a kind of deferential politics where they were the constituted authorities. And until the people had voted them out of office, they should be left alone to conduct the nation's business. And I think it was their intense, extreme frustration with, say, newspapers that led to the Sedition Act to try to shut down the Republican press because they said, if we can kill these papers, we can kill this opposition, and then we'll sort of get back to the way things should be. But obviously that, um, that train had long since left the station. And I think the Federalist uh, you know, for a time, certainly with Fenno's paper and Noah Webster's paper and some others do things to further their political interests. But again, their heart wasn't in it. Uh, and even Noah Webster, famously in the Jay Treaty debate, Webster had himself gone door to door, had published a lot of editorials, had worked very hard at grassroots politicking. But he wrote a kind of postmortem after the treaty debate was over and the Federalists had gotten it approved. And Webster basically said, in a sense, everything we did we had to do, but it was all improper. We, we shouldn't have to do this. Politics shouldn't work this way. And I think there's enough of that sense of Webster's conviction that this is all improper that really hamstrung the Federalists when it came time to politically organizing. Um, and in fact, after 1801, the only sort of revival they have until they fade into oblivion, as Steve noted, they have a brief mini revival. And it's not because of anything they do it's because of the unpopularity of Jefferson's embargo. In 1807, 1808, 1809, there's kind of a brief uptick in Federalists winning elections, and uh, there's hope for the Federalists maybe coming back in some ways, but it, it doesn't last, it doesn't hold. Um, and even though James Madison has a, a real struggle in his first term as president, um, there is an unpopular war uh, under, uh, underway. Even then, the Federalists are not able to really put together anything um, to make them a competitive party. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, I like you brought up Madison, and there are several questions that maybe we can get to this in a minute, uh, having to do with the, um, the, 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 what they're calling the Jefferson-Madison dynamic uh, after this and uh, in the aftermath of 1800 and, and their relationship in building a party and opposing federalism. So I'm hoping we can say something about that as well. But uh, another question that came up, a few people noticed, uh, again, kind of back to the, the, the way the Federalists and the Republicans were characterizing each other, um, 
they're also asking about the way Hamilton and Jefferson characterized each other. So I'd actually love to hear your thoughts on, um, well, let me do it this way. Um, Hamilton, of course, what is he, he writes that Madison and Jefferson have this womanish attachment to France. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, Jefferson accuses Hamilton of being a, uh, a real, but perhaps closet monarchist. Um, I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on to what extent either of those characterizations are true. Well, I'll start off with Hamilton's belief that Jefferson and Madison had a womanish attachment, meaning that uh, this is them, not me, meaning that they were allowing passion to override their reason. Uh, they were allowing the American admiration for what France had done for us in terms of securing our independence to override what was now in the American interest in 1792, 93, 94. So Hamilton, I think we can safely say, is a realist to the core. And you don't let passion, you don't let emotions guide your foreign policy. And it simply was not in the American interest, Hamilton believed, in the early to mid-1790s to even tilt towards France. Not that Jefferson and Madison were urging you know, military in intervention on behalf of the French Republic. They weren't. But just a tilt in that direction would be too much. Britain was our greatest trading partner, and Hamilton is all about securing wealth and wealth, the wealth and well-being of the of the new republic. So I, you know, I, I I do think. I mean, if you read Jefferson's famous Adam and Eve letter, where he talks about every man and woman in France being killed, save one apiece, in order to keep the species alive, you know, that would essentially be worth it in order to overthrow the old regime. That was crazy talk in Hamilton's view. Uh, that was that was a kind of extremism and zealotry that was completely detached. Uh, you know that no rational statesman should embrace that that kind of thinking. And I have to say, I do think that uh, Jefferson's devotion to the French Revolution uh, is is hard to fathom, particularly once it started descending into a bloodbath. Uh, he was he was late to the game, if ever, in terms of of uh, criticizing that that event and those events. So I'll defend Hamilton on that one. Okay. Very good. Yeah, and I think just um, Jefferson's charge against Hamilton of, of monarchism, uh, as Steve's book has so richly documented, that was always a repeated attack on Hamilton um, for, for years and years, and, and even many later Subsequently, many scholars picked up on that and, and made some of those same sorts of, uh, of charges. But that was for, for Jefferson, I think, a reflection of how central in his mind and his politics the rebellion against Great Britain had been and the rebellion against the monarch, against uh, British authority, against the centralized, consolidated power of the crown. Um, that was always preeminent for Jefferson. In some ways, he never lost sight of uh, 1776, if you will, just to, to use a, a shorthand. And I think in the 1790s, a huge part, and I think this is sincere, it's not just a rhetorical affect, but I think a huge part of Jefferson's objections to Hamilton is uh, that even if we can can say, well, Hamilton wasn't really doing that, I think Jefferson seems to think that he was, that he was, in fact, uh, pushing the country in a direction that could lead to monarchy, uh, pushing the country in a direction of, of vast 
consolidation. And I think for Jefferson, that triggered all these alarm bells about re, re, uh, playing the, the British, uh, rebuilding the British uh, government and things like that in the United States. And the Federalist way of celebrating Washington, of celebrating his birthday on February 22nd, uh, Hamilton's plan to put Washington on, on coins uh, and currency. These were plans, again, that, that to Jefferson just smacked of, of monarchy and hero worship and these kinds of things that he thought were very dangerous uh, in a small-R Republican society. So I think that that monarchy charge against Hamilton is is overblown, certainly. But I think it's also, from Jefferson's standpoint, he was consistent in that. He, he I think, sincerely believed that that's what Hamilton was, was trying to do. And I think it's part of why everything Steve just said about Hamilton's perspective, everything I've just said about Jefferson's perspective, which I think is really borne out in these two letters from 1792 that we looked at today, I think from that standpoint, we can just see that these two guys were in many ways talking past each other. They, they couldn't quite engage. They couldn't quite answer the other's charges to either one's satisfaction. They were sort of speaking past each other because they just had these fixed ideas about what the other person represented and what that meant and how dangerous those were. And I think that's that's a key part of the uh, of what underscored this this conflict between the two, um, really from 1790 uh, down to 1804, I guess, when Hamilton died. If I could just add to some of Todd's great points, I think uh, we we started off earlier talking about ambition and whether you know Hamilton's ambition, Jefferson's ambition. Uh, I've often thought that. Uh, you can see elements of Jefferson's ambition in that devotion to the spirit of 1776 that Todd just alluded to. Um, I, I have a sense, and I'm reading between the lines here, that Jefferson almost felt a certain ownership of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and to some extent that Hamilton, for sure, and maybe even Washington, Washington to an extent, were, were kind of interlopers. On, on that ownership of the spirit of 1776 and all that that represented. And thus, Jefferson's election in 1800 is, as he, as he puts it, uh, Todd would know this better than I, but you know, pretty much on par, if not greater, I think he says greater than the revolution of 1776, that what happened in 1800 finally put the counter-revolutionaries back in their place. And we were, we, were, we the Jeffersonians, were restoring... Uh, the, the spirit of 1776 that had been hijacked for 12 years by Washington, Hamilton, and Adams. But again, I see that as a kind of hubris, perhaps, you know, and representative of a kind of ambition on Jefferson's part that he, he sees a kind of ownership of the whole revolutionary ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very good. Right. Very good point. Yeah. And that's on this also. <laughs> This is maybe a good time to sort of circle back. We have just a few minutes left here. Jay had asked earlier about um, we had we were talking earlier about how Washington tried to emphasize what Hamilton and Jefferson had in common as opposed to their differences. Um, what what did um, what what can we say that Jefferson and Hamilton actually had in common? If, I mean, it seems to me there's a big, big difference of emphasis. Not to say that's unimportant; it's clearly important. But do they have? Do they share principles? Can, in what sense can we say that they're both American? Well, two, two things come immediately to mind, although these are not quite principles that were shared. But 
they both pleaded with Washington to run, to run for re-election for a second term, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> each not wanting the other or their allies to, you know, to take to take the executive control of the executive branch. So that was one point where they were on the same page. And another point, we've already kind of touched on this, where they were on the same page, is neither one of them trusted Aaron Burr. They both thought he was a dangerous figure. Uh, and, of course, in that sense, they were not alone. Most of the key founders just distrusted Burr. But beyond those two, and, uh, I, Chris, you're asking for more than what I just mentioned, uh, I, I, I have a hard time seeing uh, areas of agreement, but maybe Todd will be able to point some out for us. Well, just just briefly, I mean, I think it's it's a it's at a very broad level, but I think they were both committed to the idea of the Constitution and constitutional government. But that said, they obviously disagreed from the start about how to read the Constitution, how to interpret it, what it meant, how much weight to give certain clauses and things like that. But I think they're both committed to a a constitutional version of of government and to the primacy of of protecting the Constitution. And in fact, I think each saw themselves as upholding the Constitution. Uh, Go back to Steve's very fine point a minute ago. Jefferson saw he and his party's triumph in 1800, 1801 as restoring the proper revolutionary order and getting the Constitution sort of back on track as well. And I think Hamilton understood what he was doing in the 1790s and the Federalists were doing was to give the Constitution uh, some life um, and and to to make it work for the the new nation. Uh, so I think in that sense they were both committed to the idea of constitutional government. But again, that's as I said at a very broad level. And when you get to to details and specifics on almost every matter, I think they they clashed. Except uh, again, wanting Washington to serve a second term, and uh, agreeing that Burr was was deeply dangerous. Great. That's great. And we've come to the end of our time, so I'm, but I'm going to throw this out anyway, if, you're, if you don't mind. And I wish I had left more time for this. Is it important, is it important for us to have had both Jeff, a Jefferson and a Hamilton? Is it, what, yeah. I didn't want to ask. Well, yeah, I wanted, it'd be too, long, too much to ask. What would this country have been like had we had, had not had both and only had one or the other? Is there, is there something good that came out of this um, yeah, I, I think it's a terrific question, Chris, and I get carried away sometimes. I experience bouts of Hamiltonian intemperance uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to Thomas Jefferson. I've never seen it, Steve. Uh, <laughs> you're a gentleman. Um, I, look, I think the American experience would be um, less ennobled without a Thomas Jefferson. In a sense, he was the poet of the American Revolution, of the glorious cause. Uh, he gives us a kind of lodestar for which we can all, we should all be striving to to uh, to reach. He himself struggled throughout his life to also to, to you know follow his own principles, but he he set the standard in a way. So uh, I think we would be a much more deprived political order without Thomas Jefferson's uh, uh, almost. He's just, again, he's sort of the poet of the American Revolution. Hamilton's the, uh, the architect, the engineer, the guy who's going to try to make the system work. Uh, but Jefferson ennobled the American experience with his, with his uh, soaring rhetoric. So God, God bless him for that. <laughs> yeah, and I would just add briefly in closing, I think that, um, I mean, one way, of, one way of understanding all of American history is as a, a long-running battle 
between those two different visions, uh, neither one of which it could be argued as wholly triumphed, but both of which are still present and have been present in a variety of different uh, iterations and different generations and different uh, different particular matters. So I think I think the um, the conflict between them uh, is not only gripping on a personal level and and fascinating in all kinds of ways, and it's obviously crucial to the 1790s. But I think part of what makes the conflict between the two of them so basic and fundamental to us is because it does have so much to say to and speak to subsequent generations of Americans. And I think that that Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian battle, um, one could argue, has been alive from from the outset. Well put, Todd. Yeah, very well put. On, 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 that's a great way to think. And that, I would think that is a healthy sign, right, that we're at least still arguing. I'd be worried if we stop arguing, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on those on those great thoughts from both of you, let me thank you both again for your time today. This has just been very enlightening and fantastic, uh, as always, when we have you two uh, do this. So let me let me thank you very much, and um, let me recommend to everybody joining us today your your your, your great book. Steve Knott uh, has a couple of books on Hamilton that are just fantastic. Washington and Hamilton: The Alliance That Forged America. I um, uh, can't say enough about that book. Uh, he's also written uh, Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth, another fantastic book. And, and Todd's book on the Jay Treaty, uh, the Jay Treaty Debate, Public Opinion, and the Evolution of Early American Political Culture is, again, um, I consider it to be the, 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 the lodestone, if you will, or the, the I'm not sure if that's the right word. It's the, it's the book if you want to understand the Jay Treaty. It's, it is. It's, it's just fantastic. So for Thank further you. reading, if you're interested, um, I highly recommend their, their books on these things. So, again, thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who submitted great questions. We didn't get to all of them, uh, but we, we got to quite a few. They were all very good. Uh, just a reminder about the email you'll get with your link uh, for a certificate of participation. And let me mention quickly that our next Saturday webinar will be uh, November 10th, it'll be on Frederick Douglass versus William Lloyd Garrison. We'll be joined by Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University. So best until then, hope to see you at our next Saturday webinar. Take care. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.